0: Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another Mailbag, where I answer your questions, comments, takes, concerns, and all that good stuff about tennis, or really whatever you want. About 24 hours ago, over 24 hours ago now, uh, I posted in the community tab of my YouTube channel, which can be found on the homepage, and we got 65 comments, a very strong number. I didn't tweet this time. My apologies for anyone who likes to get in on the action via Twitter. But um, I just went pure YouTube here. Hope everyone's doing well. Happy Juneteenth. Um, And let's get going. First one comes from Ankeet Reddy. How does Djokovic's forehand compare to Federer and Nadal's forehands in terms of consistency and effectiveness? as measured by topspin, power, pace, and variety. I understand that Nadal and Federer are widely considered to have the greatest forehands in tennis history, but is the difference between their forehand groundstrokes and Novak's truly significant? It's a really good question. Well, I'll say this. Novak's forehand is not as much of a weapon as Federer's and Nadal's. That is to say that, you're not really afraid of Djokovic's forehand in a neutral baseline rally to the same extent that you're terrified of Nadal and Federer's forehand. It's just not quite as damaging from neutral positions. But you got to take a more holistic look at what a shot is, especially if we're, if we're classifying a ground stroke as broadly as to just say the forehand, meaning how consistent is it? Can you defend with it? Um, and if you really take those things into account, Novak's forehand is criminally underrated. And I don't know if that's just because his backhand is so good that no one really wants to talk about the forehand. That's likely the reason why. And I think we see the same thing with Nadal with his forehand and no one wants to talk about his backhand, but all things considered, Djokovic's forehand is world-class, world-class and if you just look at the comment and, and you look at the categories, you know it's not that I won't take Federer and Nadal's forehand over Djokovic's, because I will. But there are some areas where where Djokovic is just as good, if not better. So first, topspin, Nadal and Federer have Djokovic beat. Power, Nadal is has the most powerful forehand of the three. Djokovic and Federer are kind of even. Um, pace is to me, pace and power are kind of the same, but if you replace that with timing, the ability to redirect the ability to take the ball on the rise and hit clean, that is probably Djokovic's best attribute on his forehand side. I think he, he redirects the ball so well. I think he's very precise on that wing and, uh, he's right up there with Federer and Nadal in that respect. And then variety. I also think he, he lags behind. He doesn't mix up his heights and his spins and his angles as quite as much as Feder and Nadal. But the answer to your question is the difference between their forehands, uh, between Djokovic's forehand and Feder and Nadal's forehand, significant? Probably not as significant as people would like to make it out to be. Who is winning the US Open in French as of what you think right now? Parentheses. Can't tiptoe around the answer. And half of that comment was in all caps, I'll have you know. Um, Okay, okay. You want picks, I'll give you picks. That comment uh, came from OCS. So I got to say Dominic team wins the U.S. Open. Rafa Nadal wins the French. Those are my picks as of now. A lot of that has to do with physical conditioning and I think the the packed schedule will really benefit Dominic team who is the most in shape player on tour for my money but I also think motivation might be a bigger factor than usual and I think team is still obviously so hungry for his first I'm wondering if he's just going to come in with a little bit more of a chip on his shoulder than the others when it comes to a tournament that might kind of have a bit of an asterisk next to it. And I don't want to go too deep into it because ultimately this is subject to change. I want to see them. I want to see their form. I want to see their tennis. I want to see what they look like. But from what I saw from the Adria Tour, man, Dominic team was as explosive as ever. Looked like he hadn't lost a step. I was so impressed with his movement team is a guy who who likes to be well behind the baseline to use his power and uh, to position himself on clay you know when he positions himself well behind the baseline he's able to both defend and build offensively from the same position which is very unique but when it comes to progressing in in team's offense, I was very impressed with how well he was moving forward into the court. Because once you build from the back of the court, once you get your short ball, you know you really got to press up a little bit. You, you need to make that. You need to have that transition game. I was really impressed with team's movement. Again, not just laterally, but also the north-south movement. So explosive, and uh, Djokovic just wasn't in the physical condition that Dominic team was in. Not even close. And they never ended up playing. djokovic didn't make that final but if they did i would have heavily favored team fast four format and all don't get me wrong i'm not putting a lot of weight into what i saw in the adria tour last weekend i just thought i'd comment on their games and compare and contrast ultimately physically and mentally i think team has a bigger advantage than usual and regardless i think he's ready if you remember i picked dominic team to win the US Open at the start of the year. So I'm just I'm just not changing right now. Next one is from SAPsave. I don't remember who, but a member of Djokovic's team said that currently Novak's biggest obstacle at the French is team and not Rafa. Thoughts on this? Even if that's true, that's blasphemous. I mean, have a little respect, right? Now, I actually did not see this comment, so I don't even know that this is true. So, let me just throw that out there right now. I'm just taking this commenter's word for it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's silly, it's it's disrespectful. But at the same time, you know, if it's if it's mental warfare, it's a, if it's a jab, if it's a poke, if it's someone in Djokovic camp just trying to be an agitator, all right, whatever. I mean at the end of the day I, I don't I don't have that I don't care that much about this kind of stuff I it's like I care more about what the players say than what the players you know family says and I know something's going around right now uh, Djokovic's father said basically took a shot at Federer for still playing basically saying the only reason Federer is still playing is because he can't get over the fact that Nadal and Djokovic are going to pass him it's like okay, uh, I don't know. I don't know what even to say about that. Like, why should we care what Djokovic's father thinks of Federer still playing? Like that opinion means absolutely nothing to me, and I don't think it should mean anything to you either. Um, but again, like, even if Novak's biggest obstacle at the French is team, it's still disrespectful to even go there, based on what Nadal has done. You know. I mean, you got to put your money where your mouth is at at a certain point. Hey Gil, two questions. One, last time I asked how Joker slash Nadal's games would evolve late into their careers. You said that Rafa's overall skills are better suited for longevity, but Novak doesn't seem to be aging as much and he has the serve advantage. That's right. Uh, You didn't quantify it though. How many more years do you think each will be regularly getting into the semi slash finals of slams? What is the last slam that you think each will win and at what age? I'm going to be honest. I hate predicting longevity. You've probably heard me say that before, but to predict longevity is such a futile activity. I will do it anyway. Just know I'm not happy about it. Uh, I would say I'll give Nadal three more years and Djokovic four more years. So that would put Nadal playing. Oh, that would make, that would have them both playing until 37. I don't think that, I don't think there's going to be a large portion of their careers where they're playing, but not winning. And maybe I'm wrong. I don't. That's just a gut feeling, but something tells me as soon as Rafa Nadal is the number 10 player in the world, I don't I don't really think he's going to still be sticking around because that probably means he's just not healthy and he's playing through pain. To me, A equals B. Again, purely speculative. So I'll, I'll give them both until 37, which would be three more years for Nadal, four more years for Djokovic. I think uh, Djokovic, to answer the second part of your question, is increasingly getting better and better on um faster surfaces. If you ask me in 2011, I would always I would still tell you Djokovic's best surface is hard court, but I'd say French Open versus Wimbledon, I might think that it's pretty close, that Djokovic is a great clay court player and a good, gra- you know, a great grass court player and it would be tough for me to discern between the two. At this point in his career, I'm quite confident that Djokovic is a better grass court player. Just because he's not the same physical Titan that he was in the early 2010s, I think that made him a lot tougher to beat on Clay uh, than, than he is now with the, with the long rallies and all. And uh, Nadal, I mean, his best surfaces, I don't think we'll ever reach a point where Nadal's best surfaces in Clay. Second part of this comment is the following. Team has made incredible strides with his game on faster courts recently. Over the last 12 months, he won three of his five hardcourt titles with near wins at the ATP Finals and the Aussie Open. He is now 4-1 and one against the Big 3 in his last five hardcourt hard court matches against them. Do you think Team becomes the best player in the world on both hard and clay courts over the next 12 to 18 months? And could he ever make a similar improvement on grass and have a run? At Wimbledon well it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when 12 to 18 months could be pushing it with how well how well Nadal and Djokovic are still playing we'll have to see how Federer comes back in 2021 if he comes if he comes on strong or if he begins to fade who knows so the the time frame might be a little bit aggressive If we're going to if we're going to measure it as best in the world, because best in the world to me means that he has earned that title and he is head and shoulders, you know, alone at the top. I think it's much more likely that over the course of the next 12 to 18 months, it becomes very clear that he is not only that he's a contender, that he is in the mix I know there's another popular tennis podcast that's obsessed with the mix. I didn't mean to make a reference to that, but I did unintentionally. Uh, But the point is, I think that we will reach a point very, very soon where regardless of surface, there's a strong possibility that that Dominic team could go all the way. If we're not there already, we might be there already. So progression, best in the world, 12 to 18 months, mm, seems a little aggressive, but he's coming. The next comment is from Jose Moreno. What do you think about the four consecutive t- tournaments from the U.S. Open to Roland Garros? Is this a good chance for the next gen, or is it just a big injury risk? It's a big chance for anyone who's physically fit enough to go through this gauntlet. So just to just to lay out what we have here, Washington, D.C., Cincinnati, U.S. Open, and then th- uh, Kitzbühel after the U.S. Open, which is going to be a break for for most players, but Dominic team will play. Uh, and then you have, then you have Madrid and Rome, and then the French. So that is four Masters, one thousands, two majors, and a two fifty or a five hundred. Apologize if I said two fifty. It's, I don't. I don't remember if Kitzbühel is a 500 or a 250, but uh, you know, over the course of, I'm mean, basically it's nonstop, so it's going to be really physically difficult. But I don't think it's. I don't think it's a chance. Look, the next gen. If the next gen think that Djokovic is going to like play every tournament and gas out, that's not going to happen. We already know that the big that Djokovic and Nadal are going to take care of their body and prioritize the majors. That's they've done that consistently. They'll continue to do that. Um, with that being said, they might not be in the draw for some of these masters 1000s. So that's in itself an opportunity. Is this going to be physically demanding? Yeah. Uh, so we're going to see who's in shape. It's going to be Interesting. But uh, I would I would say it yes and no. Is it a chance at the majors? Probably not. But is it a chance outside of the majors? Yeah. Next comment is from uh, Ali Patton. Isn't the safe option for Rafa uh, just to play clay this year and skip U.S. Open? He's the massive favorite to win Roland Garros to finally equal the Grand Slam record. Why potentially put it in jeopardy by getting injured on hard court, even more likely after a long break? In my opinion, he should come back on the clay and, parentheses, hopefully win Roland-Garros number 20. Hmm. Again, I think that might be a really good option. might be a really good option for Nadal. That way, he could train a ton on clay, get himself physically ready for like a four-week grind. And it's likely that if Djokovic plays Cincinnati and the U.S. Open— Um, it's likely he's going to have to look, he'll have to pace himself. So there's two approaches. You can like take a break in between. You can take a break after the U S open, or you could skip the hardcore portion and then, you know, train really hard, get ready, get yourself in, in shape, and then do the whole clay court season. It might be smart for Nadal to just do the whole clay court season. Ultimately, like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna act like Nadal's advisor here, uh, but I do think that that option to just go hard for four weeks, the two Masters tournaments, and then Roland Garros, um, uh, it does make sense. I do think he should consider it, and I think he will. Then again, it's it's hard to skip a major, man. This is still the U.S. Open. Next comment from Amin Dalal. Hey Gil, Stan played his best tennis at age 29 and reached his best ranking too. Do you think it can be the case for guys like Dimitrov and Raonic considering that they are at the same age right now? I love what I see from Dimitrov. If you remember what I predicted at the beginning of the year, I predicted Dimitrov to finish the year in the top 10. That was probably my most controversial pick in my year-end top 10. I don't know, uh, What's he? Nineteen in the world now. So, Grigor has had shoulder issues, as I as I talked about in um, Wednesday's video when I went over his his um, serve technique adjustment. Um, but you know, if if he's healthy, I do like him to make another run. Raonic has been very up and down, very hot and cold. He's had injury injury concerns of, of his own. Uh, it's hard. It's really hard to read his career right now. I think both have a chance for another surge, but uh, you also need to, you know, you also need to step back and and think about what the ceiling is for both. And I don't think either have. I think both can, can maybe get back into the top 10, but not by much. So I don't know. It's, it's hard to say, but I—I I, that's the best I can do here. I, I would be more bullish on Dimitrov getting back into the top 10 than I would Raonic, though. Sachin says, Who of the real Grand Slam contenders, pretty much the top six, I guess, do these circumstances favor most between the long layoff, not much rest time, smaller teams, and no crowds? Um, that's the first question. Yeah, team is is kind of my answer because he can handle it physically. Smaller teams, I don't think that's going to be much of a factor. The U.S. Open is, I think most of the, the top players will bring who they want to bring because the U.S. Open is allowing players to rent out private homes outside of Manhattan. And I think most of the top players who can afford it will take advantage of that. Uh, the players maybe uh, a rung below have the option to rent out a second hotel room, which would enable them to bring three team members. Or if they want to bring a family member, if they have, let's say, uh, a partner, they can bring their partner and then two team members. So there are options there. I don't think that, that'll that uh, make much of a difference. No crowds. You know, here's, here's the thing. This might be hard to hear for some people, but... Crowds don't play into a tennis match probably as much as people want to think they do, and I I would love to do a really a good deep you know data dive into this and and maybe someday someone will do this or I'll do this, but you know I just read an interesting book, <laughs> I read uh, John Wertheim's book uh, with Tobias Moskowitz called Scorecasting, and they analyzed what, um, why the home team wins so much more often in almost every single team sport, whether it be soccer, football, basketball, baseball, hockey, the home team usually wins and it's something that we take for granted. Um, but if you really break down why, and you use data to figure out why it's, it's largely because the crowd in- influences the officiating. It's quite the revelation don't take my word for it. Read the book. Uh, but but in general, I don't think no crowds is going to affect tennis much because, you know, we don't see, we don't, you don't clearly see French players doing better than usual at the French Open or American players doing better than usual at the U.S. Open outside of the fact that they're generally playing on on surfaces that they train on a ton and perhaps year-round, or, or not year-round, but they grew up on. Um, and then I, I do think that there there's some some extra motivation for the American players and the French players, and then you have an extra comfort factor. Um, I I know, you know, I know John Isner would probably take exception and say I'm I'm way better in the United States, you know. So it's hard to say for sure, but look, <laughs> you know. Tim Henman didn't win Wimbledon. Uh, it took forever for a British person to win Wimbledon. French person hasn't won since uh, since uh, Yannick Noah, um, and then it was a while before then. An American ha- hasn't won the U.S. Open in forever. When's the last time an Australian won the Australian Open? I'm uh, I'm going to do a quick a quick search because I don't think Rafter won it. Did he? Maybe he did. Hold on. Um, Okay, so list of Australian Open champions here. Let's go to... Let's see. I'm in the 90s here. Oh, what the heck? It's been a really long time, hasn't it? Do you have to go back to... Mark Edmondson in 1976. Wow. I I got to say that's worse than I thought because you know a, a lot of players didn't play the Australian Open even in the 90s. Sometimes players would skip it. So that that's surprising. Vilander, Edberg, Lendl, Becker, Courier, Sampras, Agassi, that's kind of the 90s and then in the 80s uh you know Vilos won it twice. Vitas Gerolitis won it once. Connors won it once. But then, yeah, it was really in 1976, Mark Edmondson won. John Newcomb, another Aussie won it in 75. Newcomb won it. And then if you go early 70s, you have uh, Rosewall and Laver won it in 1969. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> again, we need an— uh, I would love a, uh empirical study to be done on this, but I don't think that— the fact that there's going to be no crowds, I don't think it's going to it's going to play too much of a factor. And I know I'm just talking about about home crowds, right? But what about what about you know Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer in that matchup? The crowd hasn't really propelled Federer to too many victories recently. Um. Are you going to continue the classic match analysis? Yeah. I'm going to do a couple more of those for sure. Uh, but thank you for the feedback. I, I like to hear that. You know, if if I hear that you guys like stuff, I'll keep doing them. Three, uh, where would you rank Federer among the best pure baseliners, both of all time and currently? Um, so all time, I'd put him behind Borg, Nadal, and Djokovic and then i probably put them ahead of everyone else the way the game has changed it's going to be bi- that question best pure baseliner that's going to be biased towards recent times that's just how it's going to be um and then right now i would say it'd be pretty similar although perhaps uh perhaps at this point pure baseliner dominic team is is probably better at this point Next comment. They want to see me do the 2013 Roland Garros semifinal between Nadal and Djokovic because it's finally on YouTube. Yes, I plan to. All right. I'm not going to go much past uh, 30 minutes here. Too many comments to get to them all. Hi, Gil. Love the show, but I've somehow never asked a question here. Now that it's official, we're going to have grand slams behind closed doors and no fans. I had an idea about crowdsourcing uh, or sourcing crowd feedback remotely. How about we source live audio from viewers tuning into a Zoom-esque mass webinar kind of platform, say a 100-plus people slash households for all matches with maybe 1,000 plus for the main courts. All of the incoming audio would be played on the court PA systems controlled at all times by a DJ slash official who mutes the feed as soon as play starts back up and mixes in some music to aid the atmosphere. Even better, we can have selective video reactions uh, from spectators to show up on the screen in between points. There could also be a live decibel meter showing up on screen to give us a sense of how much people are enjoying the matchup. I would love for it to be open directly to the ticket holders first, those who watched out on watch who lost out on watching it live, and have them participate before we open it up uh, to the rest of the public. To be clear, this would completely, this would be completely separate to the eventual broadcast feed that the general public would get to view on TV. This would just be part of the production, so to speak. It would be difficult to organize, but I think if we come up uh, with a good product, a lot of live sports events would be interested in it, I'm sure. I know there's a lot of questions about how TV-friendly such an event is going to be, and I do feel once the tennis starts, the tennis will deliver. At any rate, if a Grand Slam is underway... You bet i'll be tuning in that's why we need to start thinking of innovative ways we could create the ideal product that could make the best of the situation we find ourselves in all right a a uh, a tv geek question right up my alley because i am one um tennis is an inter- is in an interesting spot when it comes to piped in crowd noise I've seen it work really well, and I've seen it work really poorly. UTS tried to do it. I do not think it sounded good. I do not think it sounded natural. I don't think it worked. Uh, At the same time, I did watch some Premier League soccer this morning, or this afternoon, between Tottenham and Manchester United, who played to a 1-1 draw, in case you were interested. Um, And the piped-in crowd was fantastic. I mean, it sounded very authentic. It sounded very realistic, but... I suppose we shouldn't be surprised because we have something like FIFA that has perfected algorithms that are designed to, you know, basically make an artificial crowd sound like a real crowd. So it sounded great in in soccer and it didn't sound good in UTS. Overall, I think that because as tennis fans, we're used to silence during the point. I don't think that the challenge is going to be as daunting However, something does need to be figured out. What I mean by that is, is for some sports, it's going to be quite awkward. Um, While the ball is in play, it might be kind of difficult. I think, you know, a sport like uh, every sport is different. I'm not going to go through them. But baseball, for example, has a murmur, a constant murmur. It would be weird without the murmur football. Um, also really benefits from the environment and the crowd getting loud um, on on defense for the home team, if the home team's on defense or uh, so on. I do think that tennis is in a pretty good spot since tennis fans are used to silence, Uh, but they do need to figure out something. I don't think piping in crowd noise is probably the best idea in tennis. I don't see it. If it's done well, it'll work. But I do wonder about options such as music between points, uh, or options such as um, miking up, you know, the the coach's box, or doing interesting things with with the broadcast. Um, I'm not sure if if piping in crowd is going to be the best idea. However, if your idea could could work, that'd be kind of cool. That would work. All right. I will go for five more minutes here. Under twenty-five plus team power rankings for career potential. Okay, under twenty-five plus team. Number one, I will put team. Although he's he's old, I'm still going to put him number one. Uh, team, Yannick Sinner, Titi Pass, uh, uh, Carlos Alcaraz, Medvedev. Zverev, um, now we will go to Shapovalov, Berrettini, Alex Minor, and then I'll put it number 10, Borna if he turns things around, which I think he could. Karen Montgomery, can you go over the tactics? By the way, I think the most difficult part of that list is Shapovalov through Berrettini. I'm very. I'm not really sure. Uh, yeah, so that includes Demonor. I think that that group is the group that I, I feel most uncertain about. You know, who who will really make that leap? That'll be interesting to see. Can you go over the tactics Tzitpas needs to use to win against Djokovic and Nadal? Also, can you talk a bit about the strengths and weaknesses of Stefanos's serve and how they affect those matchups? Thanks. I'm curious to see if is going to improve his serve. Because to me, um, it it looks like there's more power to be unlocked there. Um, maybe I'll do something with Jeff Salzenstein about about the the next gen serves. Perhaps um, I want to start doing some some things like that. That's in the pipeline. But to me, I mean, he falls off to his left. It just looks like he could get more out of his serve. So I do wonder if if he'll start to uh, improve that serve. Um. Djokovic and Nadal—it's all about getting ahead in the rally for Tsitsipas. It's all about first strike tennis, uh, serve plus forehand. He is best when he is um, playing with margin on his forehand and approaching the net. That's when he's best because he—he is—he su- has such a really—he has such a great transition game. But he needs to use it as soon as he becomes—he tries to become a grinder, a grinding baseliner. It's not good, or, or even an aggressive baseliner. I mean, he really needs to use his all-court game. That's when he's at his best. Hey, Gil, can you give your insights on the advantages that Andy Murray has in terms of tennis prowess? Um, had help him overcome the big three? Has he overcome the big three? Well, yeah, I'm not. So I'm a little bit. I'm a little bit confused by what the question is asking, but I'll give you. Top three strengths of Andy Murray. How about that? The number one strength is his consistency. Number two is um, his feel for the court, moving the ball around, using the geometry of the court. What Murray will do, he's not overly proficient at finishing the point, but he's great at moving you around. And number three is his fitness. Number two might be, maybe should be his fitness. But when you put all those things combined, when you see Murray play lesser opponents, he will run you until you miss. You know, he doesn't need a big forehand. He doesn't need to come to the net and hit great volleys. He doesn't need, you know, the the biggest serve in the world because he will just, he will just move you around until you are exhausted and you miss. We will end on, let's see, we're at 33 minutes. Yeah, let's end on this one. What are the most underrated shots slash aspects of the Big Three's games? Also, what do you think is the most underrated shot players shot in tennis? Uh, big Three, I think, I think Nadal and Djokovic are are a similar deal. I think Djokovic's backhand is so good that his forehand is underrated. We got to that at the beginning of the show, and I think Nadal's forehand is so good that his backhand is way underrated. Nadal's backhand, he has so much variety on that shot that people don't realize. His slice has gotten really good. But even on his drive backhand, the way he mixes up heights and and, and spins, he's able to flatten it out. He is ex- ex- extremely comfortable going down the line. He can hit it close stance. He can hit it open stance. He defends on his backhand side better than he does on his forehand side. The Nadal backhand has, is, is very underrated. There's been points in his career where it's dipped a little. But certainly... Certainly over the last two, three years, way underrated. For Federer, it's his endurance, his fitness. I mean, you just, you rarely see Federer get tired. And sometimes people point that out. But if you think that that's just a product of like, Federer ends the points quickly, you're kidding yourself. Federer has really great fitness. And I think because he, something about the way he moves around the court people look at it as something other than fitness. People like to look at it as like grace or w- which he does. I mean the, you know the way the way he moves his feet it is it's extremely graceful but that doesn't mean he's not in unbelievable shape. Uh, I think he has probably underrated cardio and tremendous muscular endurance. He rarely gets tired and that's um, extremely underrated with fetter. Most underrated shot in tennis, period. Whoa. Probably at this point, the Tsitsipas forehand, maybe. Uh maybe it's the Dominic team. No, everyone knows. I, I don't know. Underrated is tough because now we're measuring public perception. Um maybe the Vavrinka forehand, same thing. I mean, people People are so obsessed with the Vavrinka backhand that nobody realizes how good his forehand is because his backhand is pretty. So that's one for sure. Um. Yeah, I think that's that's it. That's my that's my top two. Maybe the Titi Pass and the Vavrinka forehand. I like Vavrinka forehand though. That's a good pick. I also think Monfils. People don't talk about how good his uh, down the line backhand is. Great down the line, backhand. All right. Better stop me before I start talking about Jan Leonard Struff's drop volleys, right? Um, sorry if I didn't get to your question, but um, I will I will continue to do this from time to time. If it's an evergreen question, feel free to go back here, copy-paste your question, ask it again. I'm sure um, at, at some point I will get to it. Uh, looking forward to the Adria Tour this weekend as it hits Croatia along with UTS, another great week of content coming. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Our house is a mess. Come-